Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. We're here. It's Monday morning when we're recording this. At least where I am, it is rainy. It is, it is slightly chilly. It's the same here okay. in Charlotte. Because it's also Halloween, so it's good Halloween weather. Yes. But I do think that there should just be a law that when you wake up on Monday and it's raining slash rain, rainy, we'll say <laughs> raining, like actual precipitation, actual rain, and it's below like 65 degrees, <laughs> 65, you get to stay comfy, comfy, cozy, warm in your bed and you do not have to go to work. <laughs> it is snug as a bug in a rug all day. All day. That's and that's, that's just the law for understood. It. Yes. Yep. So it's not, it's not understood. It's the law. Like if right. you get up, <laughs> if you make me work on a Monday when it's a little chilly outside and also it's rainy, I will call the police. <laughs> You're breaking the law. And then I will take to social media yeah. to let everyone know <laughs> you are trying to make me work when it's raining. Right. So I agree. I did not want to get up this morning, but. I had to. Yeah. See, Rachel, but you own to. the business, so you can make that a law and just yeah. be like, pilot's closed today. <laughs> the law of pilot <laughs> is we will never make money because we will just always close when it rains. <laughs> or it could just be the law of pilot is that when any of your employees wake up on a Monday and it's chilly and raining, they know that they won't see you because you work there we that go. day. <laughs> now we are thinking. God. Sometimes I do think about like, you know, the what ifs, the hindsights of like opening the brewery and hiring and like just the positions that we made. And I'm just like, man, hindsight is 2020. That is freaking sure. I don't know where I was going with that. I feel like I had a point to bring it all full <laughs> circle. But yeah, so that's a good that's a good fix to that is to start implementing these rules where they work more or the same. They work the same. And I work less. Right. That's what I've been doing slowly by slowly. I feel like it's getting a little easier each year. That's very capitalist of you. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. It's just my life. Don't victim blame me, okay? <laughs> don't victim blame me. Listen, shit is hard. And I don't want to work 40 hours a week. I want to work like 20. <laughs> but I have, I, I do... I got to say, I might be here, I feel like, every day, but I do control my time. Like, I get to decide. All right. Well, since we've gone through the uh, what the weather is like and whether or not we should have to work. It's very old people of us. It is. Sorry. Uh, welcome to the False Bottom <laughs> Girls podcast. It's also Irish of us. Where, where we complain <laughs> about the weather and we're like, we've got a case of the Mondays. And all of that. But today we get to talk about foam. That's and great. I'm excited about this because Jen wrote this really great article about foam for oh, Zoomology. Zoomology. Zymergy. Zymergy. Thank you. I knew that. <laughs> I actually didn't know that one. I wrote it for zoology. And zoology. <laughs> they were very confused when they got it. 
sorry, I can't drink beer yet. It's only 1130 on Monday. <laughs> but yeah, so it was so, so funny, too, because I know I've told you the story, Jane. I, I might have said on an episode before. I don't remember. But when that article came out, like J- Jeff had not even made it back up to the condo like apartment from getting the mail where he was like, check this out. I am so excited to read this. Like, this is an article I can get behind. And I was like, that's Jim's article. He was like, what? Like, he had no clue. He's like, <laughs> more of this, please. <laughs> it was very funny. It's a good article. So well, we're basically going to um, allow Jen to take us through her article while I, you know, interject my one-liners, opinions, <laughs> notes. Right. I made some notes. Right. Not really for her. More for me. Right. Yes. Rachel started by saying that she had notes on my article. <laughs> it's like, well, <laughs> no, I don't. I do, but they're not like you think. Right. <laughs> they're for fun and entertainment. Right. Yeah. So this is foam is one of those things that like, If when I thought about it, if I got asked, like, how does foam form? I would, you know, I'd be like, "Um, I don't really have a great answer for that, but I know that it's molten hot. Do you know why? Because there's nothing on the freaking syllabus for Cicero who says, how does foam form? (laughs) Write an essay about foam. That's true. (laughs) Although that's how I study. Right. But you are correct that it's not you don't get something like on the, the syllabus specifically that says, like, how does foam work? But like we've talked about before, you do get asked almost like kind of backdoor questions where you would need to know, let's say you're asked like, how do, how do proteins in malt affect the finished beer, like name three different ways. Yes. Then you would need to know like, oh, foam is one of those. Foam is absolutely one of them. And then, you know, you could be like, well, the protein affects the foam. And it's like, okay, that's probably like a 70% answer and then if you can say like these specific proteins and this is how they do it like then it's like you get more points on top of Mm -hmm. that but you're right you're correct and there are a couple of other topics within beer that I feel the same way about where I'm like if you ask me like specifically like why co2 or how does like how does nitrogenization work Mm -hmm. I would like, I could probably fumble my way through an answer, but those, like, those are the kinds of questions that it's like, yeah, I mean, I would like to make sure that I can clearly enunciate that because when you are in the real world, somebody's not going to ask you like, oh, well, what are three ways malt proteins can affect yeah. the finished beer? They're going to say like, why do I have bad head retention yep. on my beer? Um, so Foam was one of those topics that I've been thinking about for a while, and the opportunity presented itself for me to write the article for Zymergy. So I, th- I think we've kind of talked about this before, too. I know we've talked about like just saying yes and figuring it out <laughs> afterwards, but that is like, that's a gen secret for everyone listening. One yeah. of the ways <laughs> I, like, I will... Sometimes I have a very vast library of personal PowerPoints (laughs) that I've made because when I study, that's a way for me to be able to like repeat the information in uh, like a brief way, like explain it in three bullet points. And that's just a way for me to organize my thoughts in a way that I can communicate them because that's something I know 
I'm guilty of like prepping for exams. I'm a lone wolf. I don't really like study groups that much. But when you do that, and I'm sure you you know this too, Rachel, like you're making outlines and you're doing all of this reading, but you never really get the opportunity to like out loud say, yeah, here's how foam forms or, you know, or write an essay about something like that, where you have to organize all of that stuff into thoughts. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And the way that I can do that is by committing myself <laughs> to something <laughs> yeah. and then I have to do it. So yeah. <laughs> it's like, I wanted to learn about foam. I, you know, I'm not going to really sit down and like write this article on my own, but when the opportunity presents itself to like, Hey, would you like to write an article for Zymergy? I can say, yeah, you know what? I was thinking, I've been thinking about researching foam and they're like, that's, that's a great idea. And I was like, totally. And then, you know, and now had, I'm going to dip it. <laughs> right. And then, yeah, I had like, I want to say it was like last September that we were like, yeah, totally. Like I can do that. And they said, it's going to be in the technical issue. And I like, I need it in April. And so I was like, awesome. I've got like all this time, just every day, just ching, 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 <laughs> chip away at it a little bit. No, absolutely not. Of course I didn't do that. Like the three weeks before it was due, I was like, well, guess it's time to start learning about foam. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yes, that's how we all so, get here. Listen, that's, I'm just saying that it's committing yourself to something in the future uh, is a great way to make I yourself have to learn. Literally do that all the time. <laughs> like it's the best way to actually get me to commit to do something as pilot brewing is to ask me months in advance. Right. Well, my calendar is not so full. Right. So it's, yeah, it's so far and then, off. And then, yeah. And then I'll bitch about it a week before, but it'll be fine. Cause I already committed. You already got me. Right. <laughs> like- right. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how the foam article came about. And I'm really glad that I did it because one, I understand foam a lot better now. It seems like I've gotten a lot of positive feedback that I've helped other people understand how foam works. And after the article, I had a couple of people reach out with additional questions that I didn't either I didn't address in the article or, you know, it was like, how do we get head retention on our mixed cult- culture beers? Like, how can we improve uh, yeah. that? So something that's a little more in depth, technical. Sure, yeah. yeah. And that, you know, gives me the opportunity to be like, okay, well, I already understand all of this about it. And now I can go look and see what else I can find about head retention and mixed culture beers. Um, so that's, that's also good because then it's like, okay, cool. Like I, I have an opportunity to learn even more about this and really get into the nitty, like nitty gritty details of foam. So with that. Foam at it. Foam at Let's it. Foam it. <laughs> Let's get in foamation. Foamation. So the first thing to know about how foam forms is carbonation. So if you're listening to this, uh, there's, well, I don't want to assume a base, a base level for anyone, but most beer is pressurized with CO2. So carbon dioxide in a closed vessel. So a closed vessel being, um, like if you're a home brewer, it's a keg, uh, Rachel, you all have a bright tank, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where you, you do all of your pressurization and in your brights, right? Uh, for the most part, for the big batch, for a small batch, we do it in keg. Okay. Because we'll transfer it into a keg and then carbonate the keg. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, and that's that the CO2 pressurization in the closed vessels allows the beer to come to become super saturated with CO2. So CO2 super saturation that's known as carbonation. And higher carbonation results in more foam, as does higher temperature. And one thing we'll say a few times throughout, maybe I'll just say it right now. So it's been said that with foam is a lot like water chemistry and that it's there are a lot of competing variables that you have to balance mm-hmm. between like the we know how you could get really, really good head retention, right? You can make a beer with 100 percent black patent malt and you would have fantastic head retention. You would have a terrible tasting beer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You can make a beer with 100% wheat and you'll have fantastic head retention. It's going to be a pain in the ass to try to brew. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of trade-offs that you make with having really, really good foam retention and then what you want your finished beer to be. Um, and this is like the higher carbonation, higher temperature. Those those are kind of the things that some of the trade-offs that you might have to make. So we have carbonation. The CO2 is what's going to make the make the foam um, along with a couple of other things but then the way that it forms is you have nucleation and this nucleation is when you have like a small defect and when i say small it's usually like microscopic um, in a glass or container or you have like a preformed micro bubble or you have like in the case of dirty glassware you might have insoluble particles those are going to act as that nucleation point, as the starting point for your CO2 bubble to form. So when you have this pressurized beer and it's open, the pressure within the container suddenly drops, right? Because you're you're depressurizing that vessel basically. And that sudden, sudden drop in pressure encourages the carbonation to, the, the dissolved CO2, the carbonation to escape from the beer and most of the co2 escapes as bubbles that will form at those microscopic cracks or imperfection within the container so when your co2 will gather at those nucleation sites and gets bigger that's what forms the bubble and the bubble breaks free from that nucleation site and starts rising through through the beer towards the beer's head it's trying to escape from the beer and those nucleation site bubbles become larger and accelerate as they rise because they also become nucleation sites. So once that that you know initial bubble forms on that uh, microscopic nucleation point as it's going through the beer, it's going to also be a nucleation point. So it gets bigger and moves faster. And I just completely restated what I said. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. But, but that's uh, that's going to be how you're getting like the bubbles forming in your beer. And that's also uh, like I know Pilot has nucleated glasses like you can have mm-hmm. and we'll talk about glassware at the end. But you can have glassware that has those like laser etching on the bottom to make sure that there there is a nucleation site that's also going to continue to replenish the foam um, throughout like throughout drinking the beer. You're going to have a nice head of foam on there. Yeah, it keeps a. Uh... It continuously like allows aroma to release from the beer as well. So it should be a little bit more pleasing of an experience overall when you're drinking right. from a glass with nucleation points. Um, right. Intentional. Intentional nucleation, nucleation points. <laughs> should add. Right. Right. So then the next thing to talk about with 
foam is just foam stability. Um, and so it's kind of, it's easier to talk about foam st stability by talking about foam collapse. So foam that contains very small bubbles of uniform size will have better foam stability due to having more layers and also having more drainage. So bubbles collapse when the gas escapes out of them into the atmosphere above the glass and small bubbles form more layers at the surface than larger bubbles do. So I always think about this too of um, if you're doing like the, the Mosier pour, you know, where you pour straight down the middle of the glass and let it kind of dissipate and then pour on top of it when, or like the slow pour pills at beer shot, you know, when you get those really like meringue heads of mm -hmm. foam on beer, that's usually a result from pouring several layers because you're creating more layers of smaller uniform bubbles. And that's, uh, so there's going to be more layers and then because there's more layers it's to collapse, it's going to make the foam stable for a longer period of time. And if like, if you've judged in competitions before, like you've, you've probably seen beers with like carbonation problems and, mm -hmm. you know, you get the beer and there's like one big, like fisheye bubble in it or something, yeah. or you get them where it's like way over carbonated. And the other thing with the foam collapse is that more layers also means that the liquid within the foam will take longer to drain back into the beer. So if you can, you know, that's, that's part of why you do the Mosier pour of like, just take your time, you know, pour the beer, let it get that big head of foam, set the beer down, go do something, come back a minute later, pour a little bit more, and then you'll get that really thick, moussey head of foam. Um, but that's what's going on there is you're creating more layers of foam. And then it's also taking beer a lot longer to drain back through those layers. So if you think about like, if, you know, you're walking through an airport, say, and you're, you've got like a red eye flight. So you're one of like 30 people in the airport. <laughs> it's really easy to walk through that airport terminal versus if, you know, you've got like an 8am flight and so does literally everybody else. Um, seemingly in the city of Atlanta. And if you can't tell, I have a very specific scenario in mind. Um, last week when I flew out of Atlanta in the morning, which I said I would never do again, and yet I will be doing it later. This week. <laughs> um, but it takes a lot longer to move through a crowd of people than it does if there's just a couple of you. And that's what's going on also with your foam collapse. Yeah, we call that, or we, the pilots call that gate lice. When all you, I call it gate lice now because of you. <laughs> so all you people hear that your gate, your plane's about to board. You all get up, you form a line and it goes out into the middle of the walkway. That, that's your gate lice. That's, who, that's what you are. Your gate lice. It drives that's me what, insane. That's it what the pilots me. and flight attendants call you. <laughs> that's what I, that's what I call you now. I learned that from Rachel. And also if you have, <laughs> as, as a side note, if you have like any kind of fear of flying or like plane crashes or something don't sit next to Rachel on the plane <laughs> Why? She I don't uh, but and you share like very good um, hints of like survival hints I guess like uh, always wear like closed toes running shoes when on a plane just in case <laughs> right <laughs> no I have another friend who's also a pilot and like just you know, there are things that we, and I think I, I feel very safe flying in planes. It's one of the safest modes of transportation. 
Um, but then when you hear things like, hey, if it gets bad enough that your oxygen mask drops down, you're probably already passed out and like you're not going to be able to the mask on. That's where they tell you to take care of yourself first. Right. If, you're, if you take care of your kid, you're going to pass out before you take care of yourself. <laughs> but if you get it on, you probably will pass out, but you will come back. You will come back. All right. That's what I've been told. <laughs> if you get it on. Right. If you get it on. Yeah. Um, I think the thing you told me that I was just like, Jesus, uh, oh, was about the um, the flotation vest. Oh, yeah. So Rachel and I are sitting next to each other on a plane and they're going through all the safety things. And, you know, the, they go through the thing with like the the inflatable vest and Rachel leans over and she's like, so if that does happen, when you get off the plane, you want to swim away as fast as you can, because people will try to take your life jacket from you. <laughs> and, she, and she's like, that's the main thing. Is, <laughs> like people are so panicked, they forget their their flotation device, and they will try to grab it from other people. And yeah. like, I was just like, you will die. Oh, my God. <laughs> So now they won't every, forget like, their cell phone, but they'll forget their flotation. Device. Right. Right. She's like, just swim away because people will try to grab your life vest from you. And I was, <laughs> and like, but she just said it like so matter of factly that I was just like, Jesus. <laughs> so happens when you live with a pilot. Right. Learn all no. These and that's, stories. yeah, that, it, it makes sense. There's um, a lot of stories. I, I've, I have told Jeff like a couple years ago, I was like, you know what? I don't want to hear these stories anymore. I don't want to know. He's like, yeah, today was almost really bad. I'll be like, what? Stop. Stop. (laughs) So don't, I mean, yeah, statistically we're safe up there, but it doesn't seem like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So anyway, moving to the airport. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, Yes. And also just as somebody who likes to have a high degree of control over things going on around me that drives me insane well here's here's something you can have control over if someone asks you to switch seats and you don't want to just be like no thank you i want to stay in my inside seat so if when we crash they know who the body is (gasps) oh i love that that will shut them up real quick (laughs) oh i love that i am going to use that when we crash too right i'll say if we crash say when we I don't get asked too much, but I know it seems like something that seems to be rising. I was reading an article about that the other day of people just being like, no, I'm going to sit here and you yeah. can have my seat. And it's like, no, I have no, a, I, 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 yeah, I paid for the seat and Especially I specifically chose this seat. And the, uh, like, yeah, it all looks like it's coach, but those ones up closer have bigger, like you pay a little extra for those sometimes if you want mm-hmm. the leg room. So don't be all just because I'm flying by myself. Right. I need the aisle seat. My bladder's out of control. <laughs> Only when I don't have the aisle seat, though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So there's there's another diversion for everyone. Yeah, sorry about that. That's a lot of know. information. Yeah. I didn't need to know. But, you know, maybe you'll have safer air travel. Yeah, wear tennis maybe, shoes. maybe we saved a life. Grab today, your Rachel. life jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about disproportionation. Yes. Which is a word I find difficult to say, but it is one of my favorite things about beer. Um, I will watch 
sometimes if like if I'm pouring a glass of beer, I'll get like the one foam bubble, especially now that I know what's happening and just watch it like move through the head and like get bigger or like then it's it's been disproportionated into this other bubble and then I watch it pop and um, I was doing that one time and didn't realize that I had an audience, but all of a sudden my husband was like, what are you doing? <laughs> and I was like, I'm watching this bubble. <laughs> yeah, really big. So this is what happens when CO2 passes from small bubbles to neighboring larger bubbles. And so this is the main process that leads to foam collapse is these, you know, the smaller bubbles kind of merging into the bigger bubbles. And then you have fewer, bigger bubbles that are going, you know, once they pop, like you've lost a, a bigger amount of CO2. And so it can, if you don't want disproportionation um, to happen, then you can lower the temperature because stable or colder beer will have more stable foam. So again, this is like we mentioned earlier, this is one of those trade-offs of like, you could serve your beer very, very cold. It will have excellent head retention that may not be the best thing for the flavor experience you want people to have. And then the next thing about foam stability is going to be surface tension. So surface tension is the tendency of liquids to shrink into the smallest possible surface area. So if you think about like, if you put it, if you drop water on the counter, you see that it beads up and forms a ball. That's because it's trying to um, have the, you know, shrink to be able to take up as much room or as little room as possible. That's uh, my favorite thing to watch. That happens like every time I pour from the draft system and I never noticed it till you open the brewery, but like you'll finish the pour and you push it back and like a little drop falls and it's just like a little bead of beer. It just like goes yeah. over. And you're just like, what is that? <laughs> like, I never noticed it until we opened the brewery. I guess I had stopped pouring beer for so long in between brewing or something, but yeah. Yeah, so anything that that will lower surface tension will improve foam stability. So anything that lowers that tendency of the the liquid to shrink is going to improve your foam stability. So foam increases with the surface area. So as your surface area increases, your surface tension decreases. I'm not a hydrophysicist or even Aww. regular physicists. So um, you'll just have to trust me that that makes sense. I will be taking no further questions about surface <laughs> tension, <laughs> surface area. <laughs> and the with beer, CO2, CO2, nitrogen are going to be our, our biggest gas gases that we'll see in beer for carbonation. Uh, so gas solubility is also important, and that's going to be the ability of a gas to dissolve into a liquid and form a solution. CO2 is fairly soluble, so it dissolves into beer easily, but it will also move out of one bubble into the beer liquid and then be released into an adjacent bubble, bubble like we just talked about. Right, yeah, so the less soluble a gas is, the more it's going to want to escape from the liquid. So nitrogen is much mm -hmm. less soluble. And the, the presence of nitrogen in beer will have a, a beneficial impact on foam stability. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit about what's forming the carbonation uh, factors that are going to affect the foam stability. And then we'll talk about the stabilization that you also get from raw materials. So for foam, the two biggest things are going to be your proteins from the malt and your bittering acids from your hops. Those together are going to be 
responsible for a large part of how well your foam is going to form and then how, you know, how stable it's going to be. So for our malt proteins, there are several different kinds of proteins that will help, but the two most important for foam stabilization are your lipid transfer proteins and a protein known as protein Z, which is like, how do you get the coolest protein name? You know, <laughs> like it's so like crime fighting sounding. Protein Z. Yeah. <laughs> no worries. Or like very the, like, it's like a very like anti-hero. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so protein Z is the most abundant protein in beer. And it resists being broken down from the long chains of amino acids and other yeast nutrients during the mashing process, uh, during the malting and the mashing process, actually. So it's that protein Z is going to remain as a long chain amino acid in the beer and it's extracted into the wort during mashing. So liquid transfer proteins or LTPs, they move lipids around membranes and barley and the most important one for foam stabilization is LTP1. So both protein Z and LTP1 are hydrophobic, which means that they seek to escape from water. They, the opposite of that being hydrophilic, which means you love, like, love being in water. So in beer, both of those will seek out and attach to CO2 and like effectively like hitchhike uh, to escape to the beer surface. And this is one of those things where as I'm reading it, and this is just me being a massive dork about learning and particularly learning about beer. When I was putting all of this together and like talking about it now, it's just so cool how like all of these ingredients work together to oh, yeah, form the these things. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just like, wow, this just really works out for everyone. <laughs> It's like back in the day when none of us knew anything or even when we're us are just starting to learn. Right. It's like, I don't know why, but I know I just need to be very careful with this particular CO2 input. And I know I need this to be very careful here. And I don't know why, but if I do all these things, then the science will come together. <laughs> right. Yes. And that's, this is one of those things where it's like, and this is how we learn. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, that's so cool. They're like the, the CO2 bubbles, like hop on <laughs> guys, I got you. Let's go. Let's link arms. It will make a pretty head all the way up. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> they, they'll seek out and attach to those bubbles that formed through the nucleation and have now become nucleation sites themselves. And then at the surface, protein Z will form a protective layer around the CO2 bubble while the LTP one will increase surface surface adsorption. So it will do um, like we were talking about with like helping to kind of increase the surface area. So it's going to make it so there's not as much of a transfer between the liquid and the atmosphere of that gas. So again, like these two specific proteins hitch a ride and then they get up there and they're like, we got you. Like I protein C's got the bubble and a big hug. And like LTP one is like crowd control. Like, Hey, everybody <laughs> just like be cool. And yeah, that's one of those things. When I learned it, I was like, <laughs> everybody's best friends. Everybody has a job in this class of beer. Maybe they're not best friends. <laughs> they're working well together. Right. Exactly. Uh, so LTP one and protein Z protein Z are both water soluble albumins. Uh, so 
hoardings are another uh, protein class that's important to beer foam. And those are storage proteins found in barley and they're alcohol soluble. So foam stability is more influenced by the proportion of hoardings and albumins. So hoardings and LTP1 protein Z than they are by the absolute levels of LTP1 and protein Z. So it's more of a proportion thing rather than, you know, like, oh, I've got so much protein Z in this beer, like that's not going to be um, as important. So with, those are going to be our proteins for malt that are going to be helpful for foam formation and stabilization. And then we have our hop iso, al iso alpha acids which are the bittering acids, and those are the second most important foam stabilizing component in beer. So the principal source of bitterness in beer derives from hop alpha acids, so humulone, cohumulone, adhumulone. And isoalpha acids are formed during the boil when hops are added. I have a question, and you yes. may or may not know, but do you know if hop oil would affect the foam at all using hop oil instead of Hops, I mean, I know they still have alpha acids, but the fact that they're, I only ask because when we were judging beer at GABF, there was, I don't remember the round or what it was, but there was one beer that was so obviously had hop oil. I say that, I, I don't know if it was that obvious, but to me, it seemed like there was a difference of hop oil and, you know, hop, dry hop component mm -hmm. and that I could tell, but I can't remember it. When you get those little cups of beer, it's almost hard to really tell how good the foam is right. overall. Like you can right. tell like what you're getting in the sample versus other ones. But I'm just curious if you read anything, if oil would decrease the head like oil would if you were using like a coconut oil or something like that. Right. Beer. Yeah, I think that if so, I've used like bittering, like the bittering shots that mm -hmm. are just isomerized alpha acids mm -hmm. that you put, I think they're isomerized that you put like just with a syringe directly into the beer. And I think if you're using a bittering one, then it would help with your foam stabilization. But if you're using one for aroma, mm -hmm. like the one I had, I think was just like CTC because it was, just, yeah, yeah, it was just aroma. And than the, or it was just bittering, but if you're using something like a citra hop oil that you're using later on in the process. So I think that that would, that would affect your head retention, Yeah, but you're not probably. using as it's much like a dry hop. Yeah. You're not using yeah. as much. That's for sure. Right. So I don't, I think that would be another trade-off is like, you can have a consistent flavor by using a hop aroma mm -hmm. oil, or you can have head retention, but who knows what, like for a lot how of much, I don't know how much it would right, take away. For a yeah. lot of stuff, it might just be an incremental where you wouldn't really be able to tell a difference unless yeah. you put them side by side, but like, it doesn't, it doesn't affect your, like the customer experience. Yeah, for sure. I know. Yeah. Geeky. No, that's, that's a really good question. That's another question that I'll, I will look into. You have back. Nation volume two. That's right. Or, uh, addition to addition to, you should say. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, with our, our iso alpha acids, the isomerization that happens is going to be a function of the length of time that the alpha acids are exposed to the high heat in the wort during the boil. So the longer the alpha acids are exposed to the wort boil, the more alpha acids are converted into iso alpha acids. And this is pretty easy. Your alpha acids 
convert to isoalpha acids. So you have isohumulone, isoqhumulone, and isoadhumulone. And this is another thing, again, it's just so cool how everybody's got a little job and <laughs> they all work together as a community. So these isoalpha acids have hydrophobic side chains that interact with the hydrophobic regions of those malt-derived proteins. And this happens progressively within the bubbles rather than in the liquid portion of the beer. So our carbonation and our malt proteins are kind of do their things in the beer. And then the isoalpha acids are reacting with those malt proteins in the, the actual foam. And the, your isoalpha acids differ in their ability to stabilize foam with isocohumulone being the least effective. And one of the things I learned while I was while I was preparing this specifically was I knew also that like isocohumulone was something that like brewers were like, no, you don't want that. Like that's a really harsh, rough bitterness, like that's bad quality bitterness. So I looked into that and found out that that is actually incorrect. Um, but that was something that I like, you know, I learned as a home brewer of like, yeah, you mm -hmm. don't want a lot of cohumulone because it's going to be really rough. Um, so the test that that was based on was actually very flawed. Um, and it was from the early 1970s. So going back to like a lot of research is English translations of German or some guy's research paper from the 1970s. Problematic old white man. Never that's, <laughs> that's what this was is what actually happens is these hop alpha acids convert, they isomerize at different rates and at different times. And that wasn't accounted for in the, like in the study, which is also something that like, we know that now. And so that feeling that the isocohumulone is harsher is not, is, is not a thing. Like that's not something you really have to worry that much about. Um, mo and also, mm -hmm. I, if I remember correctly, most like cohumulone high hops are usually going to be aroma hops anyway. So they're not really being that exposed. Yeah. To, well. They're not going to be exposed to the boil if you're using them like in your whirlpool or something like that. But anyway, you don't need to worry about isocohumulone. <laughs> I just can't wait to. Well, actually, somebody. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, it was so funny because I like I, I had in my notes, so I read it somewhere that like, oh, isocohumulone is associated with this. Yeah, and I don't remember how I ended up being like in another article that was like, this was actually a flawed experiment. And like, here's why. And I was just like, what? Yeah, just another, you know, another one of those things that like keeps getting repeated. Yep. Exactly. And, and then it's just like, oh, wait, did anybody actually check this? And yeah. so those are our raw materials that are going to affect our foam stabilization. Um, so then we also have the brewing processes that can affect foam. And this is another area that is still not completely understood. Like beer foam is not 100% explained uh, right now. Like there's, there's a lot of good theories out there that seem to make sense. One of the things, this is another brief diversion, but one of the other one of the other presentations I've been working on is about um, humoral theory and how like that still is 
there are still things in beer and brewing that came like came from like the four humors, you know, from like ancient times and reading through kind of that, the path that it's taken and like, here's modern medicine and here's all this stuff. Like they've, like, they knew quite a bit of stuff, the same stuff that we know now and just had like what was available to them to explain it. And then as better information came along, it made more sense. But at the same time, it's like, you can't prove things. You can only disprove other things that Mm -hmm. make it more likely that this thing will be true. Uh, So this is one of those things that it's like, yeah, it seems like we don't understand foam chemistry. And maybe in a few years, they're like, people like in a hundred years, assuming civilization hasn't been wiped out by then, you know, people are going to be like, can you believe like, look at these nerds thinking about disproportionation being a thing, you know, like <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just, there's a lot of pro- processes that are known to affect impact foam. Uh, but then there's a lot that they don't know. So these are like the best. Well, a lot of it comes from just doing the process, right? Like, like, it's just, like I say many times before the way I've learned, learned what to do before what's happening. And a lot of it comes from that too. Like um, for, you know, there's like celery can have an impact on your film and it mm-hmm. depends on the brewer and how they're doing stuff. And they might not necessarily know why, but they know if they go too fast or something like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the processes involve both foam positive and foam negative effects. And again, like this is, there's a balancing act that brewers have with everything. Um, but with foam, you know, between sacrificing foam enhancing actions to maximize the impact of another ingredient or process important to the finished beer. Like, let's say you really want to have a a great head on your beer, but you also want to make a 12% beer. So then it's like, well, you can have a 12% beer or you can have a beer with really great head retention, Yeah, (laughs) but you can't have both. And that's fine. And like, as a customer, I understand if I'm getting a high ABV beer, I shouldn't expect like this giant head of foam on it because. And if you do open a bottle that's very high alcohol and you get a lot of foam nation coming out of your bottle, that is an infection. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That is not the type of foam you want. Right. That is not quality foam. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, so we uh, we've talked about malt has having the largest impact on foam. And so it contributes those foam stabilizing proteins, but it also contributes lipids. And lipids are fats, oils, hormones, and waxes. Those are insoluble in water. And lipids compete with proteins and the isoalpha acids leading to foam collapse. So, you know, malt gives a whole bunch of this. It takes away a little bit of this. Like, it's still worth it. There's not like a a lipid-free barley out there. And if there was, it probably would affect the taste of the beer in different ways. So the lipids will compete with those proteins and the isoalpha acids. Um, And that's also why if you, this was a very gross trick I learned from my husband that when, like, if your beer is like really foamy, like if you're at like a keg party or something and a keg party, (laughs) I'm so so old. What are they called? (laughs) Like if you. Kegger? A party? Yeah. Like if you're in a, like in a frat. Yeah, basically. A, yeah. Like party. If you're at a, yeah, if a you're party, at, if you're at a keg party, if you're at a keg party, it's, it's, it's got to be a keg party. where they have it's alcoholic beer. They yes. have to have a keg. <laughs> right. But, you know, you're pumping the like the uh, party pump and you get really foamy. 
your that's why you can like rub the side of your nose get some of that face if you oil. have oily if you have oily nose right i <laughs> i have very oily skin so i can always do this but um you know you get some oil on your finger and put it in your foam and that lipid that's a hey. fat that's oil right that's going to help dissipate your very foamy beer um or, don't do that they don't ask you about that on master or, yeah Oh man, I hope that I, at some point the opportunity presents itself to be like, how can I control foam in this beer? And I'm just like, well, when I was a young, young Siva at the beer bar, sometimes if you order your beer and it sits there too long until you could get it, your foam would dissipate. Right. But right. so if you need to up your foam without the customer knowing, you take a little straw, just stick it in there, swirl it up, agitate that shit. Yeah. Just go search the table real quick. One time I was doing that, my manager's like, don't let people see you doing that. I was like, oh, yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> Trick the I, um, I was doing that a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was on a photo shoot and I had a glass of beer and the guy who was uh, photographing me was like, yeah, like I did this shoot a couple of weeks ago with a food stylist. And he's like, I learned like so many tricks, but he he did that because, you know, we're we're yeah, the foam is, is collapsing. Yeah. yeah. And so he like handed me a coffee stirrer and I started stirring it and I was like, okay, good foam, good foam, good foam. And then it was just like, (laughs) (laughs) I made a giant, yeah, I made a giant mess. Uh, But anyway, lipids. (laughs) So some other things with your grist that will affect your foam stability, Um, adjuncts such as sugars, syrups, corn, and rice they will, they're going to dilute your overall protein concentration, right? Because you're adding just the like sugars without adding proteins, um, but they're free of lipids. So that's another, like, you know, it, it may not be the, like it. Yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons why having an adjunct will help improve your quality of foam or your volume of foam, I should say. Right. Exactly. And wheat proteins, of course, wheat has like the superior foam stabilization ability, but it's also wheat is not the easiest to work with. And you can, like you could make hundred mm-hmm. percent wheat beer, like that is possible. And you'll have very, very good head retention. Um, you also just have to deal with having a 100% wheat beer, which is going to be a nightmare to, to brew. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so, so then malts with melanoidins will provide better foam stabilization. So like I mentioned, black malt provides excellent foam stabilization. That's probably one of the best things that you could do for foam stabilization, but it's not feasible in most beer styles. And even in styles that utilize it, you're using such a small amount, you know, like in a in an imperial stout, if you're using black malt, you may use maybe 5%. Like yeah, you're not, exactly. you're not using a lot of it, but it will uh, provide better foam stabilization. But then we do have malts that you can use, like a dextrin malt that will help you with foam that you can. What do you mean? Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. It helps. I'm about with... to get to that. Okay. Well, then beat me out. <laughs> it adds to the viscosity of beer and gives perceived fuller mouthfeel. I mean, it's literally one of the reasons why we use a dextrin malt in beer. I've like upped dextrin malt in recipes before and noticed a difference. Yeah. Dextrin malt is, is that under modified? 
That, because it can't be a caramel malt. It's not a caramel malt. It's typically like a crystallized malt. Right. Well, like, that would be a caramel malt. Aren't they different in the sense that one's like... Hold on. I looked this up before. No, I can't all, remember exactly. all caramel, all crystal malts are caramel malts. But not, not all caramel are crystallized. Right. Okay. Right. That's what it is. Um, crystal malts are made in a drum is the difference between the two. So all crystal malts are caramel malts, but not all caramel malts are crystal malts. This is an interesting discussion point because caramel malt are actually foam negative. And that includes things like carafoam and carapils. They're not sure why. This is uh, something I went through like so many Charlie Bamforth <laughs> interviews um, because it's something that they've learned more about. Like this is a process they're still learning more about. Um, but what they think is that they're foam negative because in beer, they act more like lipids than they do like like the proteins that you would be using normally. Hmm. So a lot of, a lot of people that is a common misconception. And that was actually something a couple of years ago during a, a summit with Ashley Carter of Beerstadt Lager House. She was talking about how she makes her, her beers. And she, somebody asked about carif or carapils. And she was like, no, I don't use carapils because it's bad for your head retention. And I remember having somebody like a friend of mine say like, Hey, I remember she said this, but like, it's called Carafoam, it's called Carapils and you're supposed to be able to use it for that. So that was kind of like the start of going down that rabbit hole, but caramel malt is net negative for foam retention. Why, why does every this. single malt supplier on their website say that their dextrin or carapils or carafoam, whatever they're using is for foam. Like, I'm like, I, I believe you. I'm just looking through right. right now as we're talking. Right. And I want to say, I found something with um, that, like that started with breeze. That's a breeze product of, is like the carapils. Well, yeah. Carafoam is Wireman. Carapils is breeze. It's just a brand thing. Right. But they, it, that started with breeze saying like, this is something that's good for head retention. Um, it's, it's not, it's not, like I said, it's net negative. So like you said, you use caramel malt for a lot of reasons and it's, they behave more like lipids. So they tend to compete with those proteins and iso alpha acids rather than like work together. Well, I just, I don't know. I mean, I hear you, but I don't know why every, even Wireman has on theirs that it proves head retention and fuller body. Yeah, I mean it, it probably does fuller body, but it won't it won't do head retention. I just need more information. All right. Do, <laughs> do your own research. I will. <laughs> I will conduct an experiment. Or I will just go ask some more people about like what the fuck. Yeah, it's in a um a Beersmith podcast interview with Charlie Bamforth from I think like 2016 or so where he talks specifically about caramel malts and what they've, what like the newest research is. All right. Well, please link that to our episode, that podcast, if you don't mind or something, I'd like to, I mean, I can find it. I just mean for the non-believer listeners out there like me. <laughs> no, I, I, that's one of the best things about science is that it's always changing. You know, you obviously I, 
can look at some data and say, this is different from my experience, but I don't know why. Right. Put it that way. Right. I've always been under the very hard, like, I feel like if I got this question on a master's sister exam about head retention, I could write dextrin malt and they would give me, they would say, yes, that's right. So fix it, right. Jane. Try Take it. it, to it. <laughs> Try it. <laughs> You're not Fuck. grading my master test. Yeah. Fuck around. Find out. <laughs> <laughs> That's bullshit. All right, all right. We're going to talk about this later. We're going to talk about it. I just feel like if I took a master sister own test today and wrote that and I go on the internet and I pull up everything I'm pulling up, how are you going to tell me that's wrong? <laughs> how are you guys? How? All right. All right. Anyway, our next step that our next process that can affect foam is going to be our mash. So the mash is when we're crushing the grain, mixing it with water. And what the goal of the mash is to make as much soluble material as possible in the wort. And there are several different types of mashing regimes that you can use depending on your goals. We've talked about all of those. You can go listen to that episode on the different kinds of mashing. Um, but factors that are going to improve your foam quality for in your mash is going to be a higher mash temperature, a lower pH, so around 5.1, and then avoiding oxygen pickup. So another thing that's going to be really important for your head retention is going to be your wart gravity. And we've already talked about this a little bit, uh, but that's going to be the measure of the amount of fermentable sugars present during the brewing process. And higher fermentable sugars means the yeast has more sugars to consume and turn into alcohol. Uh, but what happens then is your yeast becomes stressed at higher alcohol concentrations. And when it becomes stressed, it's going to release foam damaging proteolytic enzymes and lipids. Uh, so your higher ABV, higher gravity beers are going to have worse head retention just because the yeast is going to be stressed as it's working at that higher level. So with your lauder, that's going to be your next step. And this is when we're separating the wort from the spent grain. Clearer warts, so if you have a brighter beer, it will typically have lower levels of lipids in the wort. And during wort separation, both polypeptides and lipids will tend to stick with the spent grains and not transfer into the wort. Um, you want those polypeptides because they're foam positive, but you don't want the lipids because they're foam negative. So your clearer wort, this is one of those things where it's going to just be a net win for foam stability um, because yes, you're not getting as many as those foam positive polypeptides, but you're also not getting those foam negative lipids but you're doing like you're, there is a trade-off there. I found an article that says you're right. Thank you. It's fine. Is it my article? No. <laughs> <laughs> right. it, it this says is like, by Jay Blue. It says exactly here. like what you said though. It's like, yeah, there's some more studies that say maybe not. And here's why I'm like, fuck. well, I just like to know that I can find it. Right. No. And that's important. And like we've talked about before, it's important that we, entertain questions and look into things more because we're we're always learning that's, more and that's and, fucking beer too like people right. are like how do you know this much and i'm like you don't understand how much i don't know right like always learning it's always changing one there's always something new to learn right exactly and then and then just simple misunderstandings or things that we've all been taught 
that is this way because like you said before, this is the way that it was determined in the seventies for one reason or right. another. Right. One of my biggest ones, this is another diversion. Uh, one of my biggest ones that drives me crazy is in the BJCP guidelines for American light lager and American lager, it says that they can have a green apple flavor. And I think I've talked about this before on the podcast. It's not acetaldehyde. And people read that. And I had somebody say that to me last week, like, oh yeah, Miller Lite, obviously it's got some acetaldehyde in it. And it's like, well, okay. Technically every finished beer still has some acetaldehyde in it. It's just yeah. not at a threshold you can taste. So you're not technically wrong, but when they say green apple, they mean unripe apple. They exactly. Like a young beer. Mean, right. They yeah. mean, yeah, they mean unripe apple. They don't mean acetaldehyde. And I, yeah. and, and, but I get, like, I understand that logic when you read that like it can have low levels of green apple in your brain. It's like, well, when you say like it can have low levels of DMS and it's not a fault, like your brain makes that jump to it can have acetaldehyde and it, it doesn't. It's, it's exactly. unripe green apple. So if, if they, listening if to they this, meant acetaldehyde, they would have said acetaldehyde. Right, right, exactly. Like they do with DMS. Well, maybe, yes, yeah. maybe. There, I mean, it, there's inconsistencies, but yes, I think that you're correct. But that is one thing that drives me crazy that like, just one of those, you know, beer. Also, things. does any beer really need to be given like a leeway anymore of what this little off flavor it could have? Because like, I just feel like these days I can make a Czech lager that does not have, di- does not, that you cannot taste diacetyl. It might have a little left in there or whatever, like you say, but like, because I'm not a scientist, but you know what I'm saying? Like, right. do we really need to keep giving leeway to these styles? I don't think Yes. Do. When you make the rules, you get to break the rules. And the reason why... <laughs> The Czech premium pale lager can have an allowable amount of diacetyl in it is because Pilsner or Kells yeast is bad at reducing diacetyl. They're yep. the ones who created the beer style. So True. there you go. But over there, it has way less diacetyl. Now, I was making an argument before that you didn't need to travel. <laughs> but it's because that beer has so much re- traveling time. Well, by the time it gets here, it's increased more. It was way less there. It was kind of, it was interesting to taste the difference. Yeah. Um, so yeah, with, with, we've got several like mini episodes within this episode. <laughs> For real. <laughs> uh, but so the boil is going to be our next step and the boil serves a lot of purposes, but for purposes of foam, the ones that we're most concerned about are the denaturization of enzymes, the isomerization of the alpha acids and the precipitation of proteins. So foam positive proteins will become denatured during the boil, which exposes hydrophobic regions. And those will lead to those exposed hydrophobic regions lead to better foam formation and stability potential. So that's what we talked about when those get denatured in the boil. So denatured means that that protein is going to basically unravel. And those exposed hydrophobic regions are what the hydrophobic regions of the isoalpha acids link onto. Since they are hydrophilic or hydrophobic, they want to precipitate out of the wort. So you get a lot of them in your hot break and your trub um, that so that don't get carried over into the into the wort, into the fermenter. Um, so this is also where the isomerization forms or occurs, which is we've already talked about that. And then lipids are also precipitated during the boil and left behind. So you've got again like your you're gaining some things and you're losing some things. 
Uh, so overall, longer boils are going to be detrimental to foam stability because the longer you boil, the more you're denaturing those enzymes and the more those proteins and lipids are going to, well, mostly the proteins are what you care about, are going to precipitate out of the beer and during the hot break and be left behind. So during fermentation, this is really, it's like, it's easier to talk about foam and fermentation by focusing on the negative. <laughs> Unhealthy yeast will create foam negative action. So like we said, it will release the proteolytic enzymes and also autolysis products, which are going to be among them lipids. And there are multiple foam negative creations during fermentation, the two biggest ones being ethanol and the formation of fatty acids. Uh, so with, again, we mentioned temperature before, lower fermentation temperatures are going to be better for foam um, than higher fermentation temperatures will be. And then I want to add, I know you're about to get into beer service and talk about the serving side in glassware, mm -hmm. but I want to add there is a, you know, we've spent all, everything you've talked about getting all that right has really built up to getting the best foam that your beer can get, right? Now, once you have these foam forming proteins in your beer, it's kind of like you use them and then you lose them. They don't really stick around. It's not like you can like beat the crap out of your beer and still expect it to have a nice frothy head. Right. And what do I mean by that is like when we, after fermentation, when it's time to transfer the beer into your bright tank or to your keg, there's still a process that needs to be done with care in order to keep the foam from being wasted in that process and not ending up in your glass. So if you're transferring too fast or adding carbonation to the beer too fast in line, when I say that, I mean like in line, what will happen or even in the tank is say you're pumping in CO2 with no concept of how fast you're pumping it in. What will happen is the beer, the CO2 will just push through the beer and push up through it and bubble it, causing you to waste any foam forming proteins in that action instead of keeping the CO2 in suspension of beer. Like if you go slow, it has more time to keep the carbonation in the suspension of beer, not release mm, versus mm -hmm. if you're just going too fast. Um, so cellarine can, can have a negative impact on your foam. It will never have a positive impact. Put it that way. It will keep it the same or have a negative impact. And same, like if we're transferring from a fermentation tank to a bright tank, we'll put on a little pressure of that bright tank to allow it, the pressure to slowly release while the beer is filling. And that way it will keep, we're, that way, basically if I was to not do that and just allow the beer go into this tank with no head pressure on it to, to make it go at a certain speed, it would just go in there really fast. And again, releasing all these foam proteins that you've worked so hard to create. Right. So it's just cellarine has a whole another part in it that can just be detrimental to your film if not careful. Right. And that, yeah, thank you. That's a really good point. And it reminds me when I first started going to homebrew club meetings in Charlotte, I assumed as a, a woman who's been socialized in Euro colonial society that if you're a man, and you're older, then you probably know more than, than I do. I don't think that way anymore. Although I do find myself like slipping into that from time to time. I think everybody does. But I remember talking to this 
guy who was trying to get his beer carbonated and I want to say he was doing bottle conditioning. So he was doing like the priming sugar and he's like, yeah, it's not carbonated. So I keep pouring it from bottle to bottle to increase the carbonation. And it's like, that's Wait, kind of, yeah, to me, it's <laughs> bottle like, it's, bottle. it's kind of kid logic. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you take a straw and you blow into your soda, like, yeah, you're going to get a lot more bubbles right then, but you're also forcing all of that. Like you said, you're forcing all of that. You're CO2 wasting it all. Yeah. Of it. yeah. So you're not getting more carbonated. Like you're getting less carbonated. And so when he was saying that, he's like, yeah, it's not carbonating. So I'm just like pouring it. Like he was trying to basically like rouse it. And I was like, every time you do that though, you ever take a knocking, <laughs> yeah, it's like, you're knocking out, uh, you're like, you're knocking out more CO2. Yeah. And, and also you're introducing a lot of oxygen. Like yeah. You, what is he? So he's like opening the bottles, like pouring it into a pitcher, rebottling or something like basically. I can't, can't yeah. imagine this process going on. Yeah. But that was one of those times where I was like, huh, I need to stop assuming that everybody else here knows more than I do. Yeah. Well, I think the thing to remember is everyone knows something different than you do, whether right. it's good information or bad information True. is yet yes. to be determined. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so we'll talk about beer service. And like Rachel said, that I think that's such a good way to put it is that your cellaring won't improve it, but it will, I almost said disprove. diminish it. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, Can't not disprove. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that reminded me of that. I hadn't thought about that in years, yeah. but I remember being like, oh, oh, keg no. filling is a big one. I've noticed a lot of new brewers will go to keg, fill the keg which can be the speed can be controlled by how much pressure you let off the keg and they just like wide open and then their kegs full in three minutes and they wonder why it's only really half full because the top half is foam. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that foam will not that make you it to the not, customer's glass. That yeah. you will not get in the glass. Exactly. Right. Like Rachel said, like you, we've done all of these processes up to this point and it's so easy to ruin your foam by bad beer service. And the biggest one of those is being dirty glassware. And, you know, we discussed like the nucleation points. You can have intentional nucleation points, like what Pilot has, or like the Sam Adams glass is mm, the one that glass. was like when it first released was like, this is the first glass that is, you know, is very um, deliberate and how it was designed. And, and it is, and it's still like, it's still a great glass. Like I've got a graphic of it now that I'm looking at. And I'm like, yeah, that was, yeah. I remember when they released that glass and being like a Sam Adams drinker and being like, Oh, ho, 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 pinkies up. Like I'm, <laughs> I am a beer person now. Um, but you can also have the unintentional, which is going to come from your dirty glass where um, that's also where you know, if you've got the bubbles clinging to the insides of your glass, those are nucleation points and those are not supposed to be there. Um, although we did learn that apparently there are some uh, glassware out there with uh, nucleation points on the side. Oh, right, Rachel. That's, yeah, yeah, that's that's a new thing that I've yet to <laughs> see. <laughs> right. Not really everyone. Um, but some people seem to think that so. To make sure, I, I and we've talked about glassware, so I don't think we need to yeah. belabor catch the our, point Catch too our much. glassware episode if you want to know how yeah. to get a beer clean glassware. Right. But you want to make sure that you're selecting detergents that will fully rinse away uh, as because detergents act similarly to lipids. So the detergents are foam negative. 
and make sure that you inspect each glass to look for evidence of lip balm, visible fingerprints, food. And then if you can do a quick water rinse to help wash away any residual detergent or lingering particles. We both now have in-home glass rinsers. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you, Jen. Yes. Uh, but even like I've been places before where I, you know, I don't have that, but you know, like I'll just turn on the yeah, faucet real quick. Yeah. And just kind of swirl some water around in there. Filtered um, water preferred. Right. So with our glassware, the, it's going to impact foam largely because of the surface area available. So this is another reason like why a pint glass is so terrible for beer. There's a lot of reasons why it's terrible, but if you have a glass with a narrow opening, it's going to have a smaller surface area, which means you're going to get better foam. Um, if you have a glass with a larger opening, something like a pint glass, you're not going to get as good uh, head retention because there's a larger surface area. And the shape also impacts the drainage. So again, thinking about a pint glass, like there's literally nothing, you know, like the beer yeah. is going to pop and just shoop, slide right back down. Uh, so it's not going to take it very long to drain and you're just not going to get as good. And I feel like a, I feel like a frozen glass. Well, obviously we all hate frozen glasses, but I feel like it could work with you and against you almost like, yes, it's very cold. It might take away a little bit foam, maybe a foam that you actually want, you know, like most styles do want a good bit of foam. Or maybe even has like some sort of nick in there that it frozen. Now it's creating this extra friction of when you're right. pouring over foaming. Yeah. So that's that's all I've got on foam. It was actually a lot on foam. That's a lot of foam. Um, yeah. A lot of foam could be good. A lot of foam could be bad. Just that's depends exactly on what you right. Want. <laughs> yes. I was really excited to have the opportunity to write about this and then to talk about it. Uh, this is a good way, like I mentioned at the beginning, I tend to make a lot of PowerPoints on random things because it's a good way for me to summarize what I'm saying in a somewhat clearer way and kind of pull out those main points of things. I'm oh. a big fan of big fan of foam. Yeah, very good job. And very, very good article. Very good podcast. You people watching can't see this, uh, but yeah. I have my foam finger. Who said that to you again? Seattle Beer School. So Shauna <laughs> and Jess, thank you for my foam finger. It is a, it is a literal foam finger. It was awesome. But on the finger part, it says foam. Yeah. So it's a foam <laughs> finger for foam. And I love it so much, so much. So with that, yes. uh, we will wrap it up. Thank you everyone for listening. You know where to find us, but in case you don't, you can find us on social media at False Bottom Girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can email us, falsebottomgirls at gmail.com. And you can go to our website, falsebottomgirls.com. Um, there we've got some links. You can get all of our episodes. You can also link to our Patreon. Our Patreon members receive bonus episodes. You get a monthly newsletter. We do quarterly AMAs. Uh, so we thank all of our Patreon subscribers for that additional support. But we thank all of you for listening. This has been False Bottom Girls. And we make the Bruin world go round.